Hey everybody, Sheena with Crop and Gas Salem here. I am joined with the amazing Dr. Tammy McCracken, who is a personal hero of mine. I've been following her for years. Uh, I'm gonna kind of nerd out a little bit because for me, this is like meeting a Kardashian. I'm so freaked out and excited. I'm so, uh, so thrilled to have her on. Um, her background is so vast. Uh, you might as well grab a pen and paper and start taking notes. Um, if you're not following her already, please do uh, check out uh, her school, uh, Core uh, Self-Defense. Uh, and then, of course, she's a big uh, proponent and a big part of Violence Dynamics with Rory Miller. Um, without further ado, Tammy, please introduce yourself and, and let the people who don't know who are wrong and should know who you are, uh, tell them <laughs> who you are and a little bit more about yourself. Um. Yeah, so those kinds of introductions are always really awkward to follow, but <laughs> here goes. I have, um, so you started with the the title, Dr. Tammy McCracken. So I have a, a doctorate in psychology, so it's a PsyD, not a PhD, and did that industry for um better part of about 25 years. And I'm a Krav Maga instructor, so that's where, you know, we we share that background. I work with Rory Miller. I'm a director with Kyron Training, which is his organization. I'm a member of the core teaching team with Violence Dynamics. Do a little bit of work with Randy King Live. Um, basically, anybody will have, who will have me, I'm, I'm out there involved. My, we own a school here in Northern Virginia, so that was, thank you for the core self-defense tee-up, which is in you know like most places right now that are like you, bricks and mortar locations for kind of rolling the dice on reality. So that's an, been an interesting journey the last couple of weeks. And, and then I travel and teach and do some writing and blah, blah, blah. There you go. Yes, yes. Uh, if you guys haven't uh, jumped onto like the great courses, um, Tammy's got a fantastic course on the great courses. I know you can get a 30 day trial for free, but uh, it's certainly worth investing some time into phenomenal information, phenomenal stuff to check out. So um, again, follow that information. I'll post all the links to everything that uh, Tammy is doing so that you guys can follow her. Um, let's talk a little bit about that Krav Maga background. I mean, you're, it's not just a little bit of Krav Maga. I mean, not only are you a black belt, you were the third black belt through Krav Maga Global, third female black belt, right? In Krav yeah, Maga female. Global. And you were also, uh, you've achieved the rank of expert. So, I mean, it's not just, you didn't just dabble. <laughs> <laughs> so clarification on the third, it's um, here in the U.S. So it's yes. the third female in the United States to reach that um, E1 status. And so which was the, and the two women who preceded me were phenomenal individuals. It was a privilege to train with them. So I started training. I, I trained with Krav Maga Global almost exclusively uh, really for the I would say 80% of my coming up in the Krav Maga world and had the privilege of working and training under A.L. Yanilov. And I, I started training in 2011, started conversation with KMG, with a KMG instructor prior to that. And that's kind of a weird story, but, um, but I started training in 2011 and really I started as a, like, this is just something to do for a while. Uh, probably not the, you know, maybe the most noble way to, to, to start off on this conversation, but we'd moved across country and my youngest was, had not moved and relocated away from, we, we lived very close to our extended family where we'd been before. 
and he was in fifth, sixth grade. And so I was like, you know what? I'm not going to, I had my own practice. And so I'd sold that and we moved up here and I thought, well, I won't go right back into practice. I'm going to settle for six to eight months, let him figure out what life is like, not having grandparents and stuff right around the corner. And I don't do stay at home mom. Well, it's, you know, not a fantastic quality of mine, but I just, I don't. And I was with, after the boxes were unpacked, like, Oh, I'm, I'm not going to be a nice human being to be around if I don't get out and do something. Cause I just don't sit still very well. And because of this weird previous conversation with a KMG instructor, actually the first one certified in the Houston area, which is where we came from. I started nosing around up here. I was like, Oh, I'll just go do this until something else happens. And then by the, during that, I was nosing around at practices and there was a new one opening up. And so they hired me to come in and help them open the practice, but they were still putting the walls up and getting certified with the different, in, you know, mental health insurers and stuff like that. So by the time they got all the walls up and they got on all the different panels with the health insurance companies, and they're like, okay, we're ready to go and start taking patients. I was like, yeah. So about that whole, like I'm in full time thing. <laughs> things kind of shifted for me in the meantime. I just, I had done some previous training. I'd done some Taekwondo and I'd done a little, dabbled in Tai Chi here and there. And my, one of my kids did Kung Fu. The other one got to black belt in Taekwondo. And I just, you know, it was like, I like traditional martial arts. I like the history and the ritual of all that. But from a mental health perspective, thinking about if we're going to teach something to somebody that they can learn quickly and apply, it's not that, you know, sorry, Taekwondo world, uh, you know, I love you, but it's not that. And so when I started training up here, I was, you know, like, this is great. And I actually feel like I could learn this and not be here for, you know, 15 years before I figure out which is my left foot, and which is my right foot. And, and then I got hooked like emotionally, psychologically, I'm like, I love this. This is fantastic. And then, cause I had free time when the kids started school, cause we moved during the summer. I was then I trained in every possible class I could get my butt in. And then it was like, well, you know, what if we have an instructor training coming up, would you like to participate? And, you know, I'm like, are you kidding? Like, really? Okay. You know, it's worth the experience. That's the way I went into it. Like I never, ever in a million years expected to end up here. So, um, yeah, so that was, I started training in 2011, certified as an instructor in 2012. And we were in the process of thinking about just running classes out where we live. Cause it's quite not distance on the map, but a highly dense area here in the DMV area. So it was a good 45 minute drive to the school I was training at. And that was getting tough. So we started teaching classes out here and then it evolved into a bricks and mortar school. So the, I had, I've had some highlights in my experience of training. And one of them was going to Israel for camp in the summer for my, for expert, for expert camp and going over there and taking my expert test over there. And that was, uh, that was a really cool experience. So. That's fantastic. I mean, it's, it's uh, obviously Krav is wonderful and, you know, a, Again, not digging on Taekwondo or any type of martial art. That absolutely 100% has its place and it's fantastic. And we, we always tell people train, right? I don't care where you're training, train something, right? Because yep. everything has value and everything is educational. But uh, for those of us who have trained in Karav, it has a, just a, 
unique, special place in our hearts. (laughs) But uh, absolutely, I I think that's all wonderful. I mean, you've got so many different things that you've done in your background. Um, It's phenomenal. I mean, like we talked about a little bit earlier, um, you know, your day job for a while was, uh, you know, counseling and spending time talking with people and working through different things. Can you talk a little bit more about what got you interested in that line of work um, and how kind of that translates into what you do now? Because it plays a very important role. It does play a big role in what I do now. And I was, I was a little surprised at how directly, as opposed to like background noise. And, and so that's been actually really cool to be able to have this overt integration on the mat. I actually started out in uh, my undergrad degree, and I'm ancient, so my undergrad degree was in the 80s, um, in deaf education. And there was a, a just a profound lack of mental health services for members of the deaf community through without having to go through a third party. And so you think about counseling, it's a very intimate and personal experience. It takes a lot of time to build trust with your therapist. And then you've got this other person in here working as your you know, interpreter. And depending on the trust factor that's there, that that can be a rough road. And I just thought that was really fascinating. There's like, there was one in the entire greater Houston area in the 80s that was certified as a mental health practitioner and with, you know, licensure and all that kind of stuff and had the communication skills. And so I thought, well, you know what, that's definitely something that I have a little bit of interest in. And so I know it took a couple classes grad classes to see if I really wanted to pursue that. And then went ahead and got my clinical master's degree, went, continued to work in the school system, which is where I was employed at the time as a mental health counselor, built a private practice. And over time ended up just shifting populations of where my concentration was. And um, not like on purpose, you know, that, that world drifts, you know, there's some interesting meta conversations when you're a therapist about, the clients that you end up working with and why and you know how the you know universe moves not to get all weird or anything but you know and, and have people come through your door so that's actually how I got into the mental health industry and and then dialing forward to where we're at now and this is the weird conversation in Houston with the KMG instructor there he was just getting started to teach classes and he was borrowing mat space from my kids kung fu instructor and I was in this whole classic, beautiful hole in the wall, Kung Fu dojo. And, and the instructor is a fantastic human being. And he now has this really beautiful school. So I'm really happy for him. But anyway, so the KMG instructor comes bopping in through the office. I was sitting there talking to Wit, the Sifu, for the Kung Fu class. And he's like, oh, this is my buddy, Larry, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he's teaching Krav. And because of my husband's background, I knew a little bit about Krav. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. That's cool. And over a couple of different conversations with the Krav instructor, and a num- at that point in my practice, I would say probably 80% of my patient base was anchored into trauma and ranged from what we expect with women, child abuse, ch- child sexual abuse histories, sexual violence. We also, I was also doing some work with Harris County Victims Assistance Program. So I had a, a range of folks who had some gun in the face, been shot kind of violent encounters and struggling to find a bridge between what mental health can do, which is really only so far when it comes to that sense of personal authority over my body. Like I can, I can kind of put my head back together 
manage the neurology associated with post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, shift how my brain operates and, you know, kind of keep that under control. But it doesn't change the fact that I still feel profoundly vulnerable because X, Y, and Z happened. And, you know, how do I ensure this doesn't happen again? And it's not going to be all my months on the couch. You know, that's not going to, you know, some assailant is going to walk up to me and I'm going to go, I've had a lot of therapy. And they're going to go, oh, my bad, and pick somebody else. It's not the way that happens. So I was talking to, to Larry, he was the KMG instructor, and I said, hey, I have this idea. Because he was actually just sort of around the corner from where my practice was. If I send you a couple of people to take some classes, would you be willing to let them come in at a super trial level? Because if I know you're going to like try to enroll them in the school, then that creates some ethics things, you know, and all that. And so he was like, yeah, send them on. And, you know, a good number of the folks that I was working with at the time in my practice were not like, sure, I'm going to, you know, you know, right. You go on YouTube and you see the Krav, you know, videos or oh, yeah. you know how it's represented in the movies. And they're like, Krav Maga? like, no. <laughs> so it did have a couple and, and, um, I had three, in fact, go give it a try at different intervals. They were all women. And they all came back from class that first time in and went, huh, I think maybe there's a possibility that I could actually have authority over what happens to me in, in the future. And one of them actually stayed and trained with him for about six months. And so that was the that was my little thing in the back of my head that went, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Don't recommend stuff you haven't done. You know, done other martial arts, but I had not done that. And so when the opportunity opened up to train, that's why I ended up training up here. I had no intention of like, I'm going to become a school owner. Um, but that's how it falls through. And then on the mat all the time in classes, I was going to say particularly with my advanced students, but I think that's not a true statement. With all of the students at different intervals, there isn't a week that goes by that a question doesn't come up about well, what about in this situation or what about that or so i was in this situation and you know talking that through in the process or working that through on the mat and and it's not just the women I and mean, we've had some i've had some guys who've been from other parts of the world and they've had guns shoved in their faces and they've been in some pretty ugly fights and just kind of working that back through but on the prevention side just understanding our psychology and the neurobiology and what happens in your body is has become a crucial part of our curriculum here because well, I mean you're a crowd person right we like to bang that's what we do and it's and that's what people come to pay us for it's what they come to the map for and at the end of the day we're teaching the last line of defense the same guy who from Houston had a phrase I don't know if he still says it or not he'll probably if he hears this, he's going to be like, don't talk about me like that. Um, but he, he had a phrase that he would say once in a while to students, it, like doing a choke defense or something like that, especially if it was on the X eye to eye. He's like, and if you ever get in this situation, you failed my class. <laughs> you know, just as sort of a tongue in cheek way of saying the whole point, of, like this is the stuff we're working on, but you should be training to not be here. Absolutely. And, you know, and that's where that, I think that deep integration comes in. Yeah, and I think the training itself aids to so much confidence and ability to not want to be in that situation in the first place. Um, yeah. I know we highlight it here a lot. We tell people constantly, you know, ego is your enemy. 
avoid. Avoid is your answer always, right? If yeah. you found yourself being choked by somebody you don't know, you've made a lot of decisions up until this point that were wrong. So, uh, you know, absolutely. I think that's important um, to highlight for most people. You know, we don't want to use that training if at all possible. But um, going back, you hit on a really important topic that I think you are uniquely qualified to discuss, and that is trauma and training. I mean, we have, as you know, we have people from every background, man, woman, child, every age range, and every style of trauma that come into these style of schools. Um, and we have uh, a unique place where we can assist people past that trauma to empower them uh, to take control of themselves and feel better about uh, just who they are in general. And being able to provide this style of training helps them heal in ways that I think are unique. Can you talk a little bit more about kind of how training can work to help people with uh, and overcome trauma that they've been through? Sure. This is a very non-clinical conversation, I'll tell you yes. that, so, yeah, just as a caveat. It is, so the high-impact events are, whether they're mountaintop experiences or they're the dark alley experiences, they rewire our brains. And that's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing. Our brains shift. And, and how that impacts life for a lot of folks who are, have been through the dark alley experiences, using that as an, a euphemism for a violent encounter, it, it shifts in a way that creates the hypervigilance. It causes anxiety. It co you know, the list, right? We can talk about that for a long time. And, and those encounters are largely physical. And so there's a physical experience that's tied to that emotional response to life. And coming in and learning a different response to that kind of physical experience provides a, an alternative in the brain. So we used to, I don't, I'm, I'm a little rusty on my neuropsych because you know, I've been doing this and not you know, spending my time doing the research anymore, but we used to call, we used to call the neuropsych pathways or the, the little neurological formations where those dendrites reach out and wire themselves together, brain grooves. And a groove is a, it's just a thing you drop into and off you go. So then you have a series of automatic responses. And so you get a groove that's part of that high incident response, the SSR survival stress response that then can create some long-term reactions. And, and so confronted with physicality, off we go into that place that maybe isn't always healthy or at least empowering in people's lives because they feel like those trauma experiences are a reflection of weakness or they don't have enough control over their lives or you know, variety of in, internal interpretations. On the mat, they learn, oh, I can hit back. Oh, I can, when I'm trapped, caught, grabbed, I can fight my way out of this. And even with, if, even if there's not a technique that I've learned yet, because we're more of a principle-based center, in our training approach, I can figure it out. Like I'm actually capable of solving the meat puzzle on my own. And that helps create a, an alternative neuropathway for the automatic reactivity to go down and creates an opportunity for people to, to put their hands back on their lives and go, I don't have to respond that way. And uh, that's huge. And, and I, I'm not, I'm not an EMDR therapist, for example, so I can't speak to that entirely, but I know people who are. Um, and ultimately, I think even with those 
NLP and neurodynamic programming that we programming options that people have now in recovery, I still don't think that they are a one-to-one -one comparison to what happens on the map physically. Yeah, I 100% I agree with that. I mean, I, I'm a, obviously, I understand in very layman's terms, you know, with my background, but I mean, I, I have seen it myself. I, I've worked with trauma victims from every different background and, you know, being able to allow people to work through and have that uh, a, that confidence in themselves that they can figure it out uh, is huge. And uh, we both know as instructors, the more that somebody can work through it themselves and find those puzzle pieces themselves, the more likely it is to stick, right? And it's yep. that, that good knowledge that stays with you significantly longer than if somebody were to talk at you and teach you a technique. So I think that's wonderful. Uh, one of the other things that you're doing that is something I'm so excited about is the 500 Rising movement. Uh, now, I, I know what it is, uh, but people at home may not know. So can you, I mean, you know, straight from not the house to name. say, <laughs> <laughs> um, can you tell name. people a little bit more about it so that we can promote it? This is something my members, my members know all about it because I don't think I've shut up talking about it for a long time. But can you tell people a little bit more about it and what's going on with it? Sure. Uh, so we'll start, we'll work backwards. So we'll start at the present. So 500 Rising is a thing because I, I don't know it's not an organization it's not a, you know it's um you know we so we don't have like a, a sense of like I don't know what to call it yet um I call it a movement because I truly believe it's going to be a wave and people are really going to take notice and and truly I, I believe it's going to be a paradigm shift in training so uh I'll, if those of you I'll go own, with that <laughs> if you don't recognize already, I am so in love with this program. So I call it a movement. I, I, I will call it whatever you want, but I, I call it the movement. <laughs> I can work with movement. That works for me. I like the, the projection that goes with that. So 500, writing, 500 Rising is a, a project or a movement that's designed to provide simple, easy to translate, easy to teach physical skills and at 50% at as far as programming goes, and the other 50% is all the prevention stuff, the threat assessment, the conflict communication, understanding how things escalate, being able to read the environment, being able to assess individual people reads and what's happening dynamically there, understanding a little bit about the realities of if you are in a violent encounter or just in a conflict, you say the boundary setting, is, we talk about boundary setting, especially in the psych industry, which makes me crazy. Just set better boundaries. And it's like, all right. And sports fans look out when you do, because if you have to set a boundary, it's because they weren't working in a social contract with you in the first place. They're not going to be, they're not going to go, Oh, boundary. Got it. I'll behave now. So, you know, so anyway, that's one of my little soapboxes in the psychological industries. We tell people, oh, just set better boundaries. Like, and there's an aftermath. So there's a thing that happens. And so we want to talk about that as well. So the goal is to create a, a series of, of training options and opportunities to get female instructors dominantly, not that the guys aren't allowed, although they're not allowed in May. Um, but, you know, long term, the, the men are certainly welcome for this education, which is actually would be good to get some of the guys in, but to get women in a place where they are comfortable delivering this material as instructors and get out there, get out in your communities, get out in front of your people, deliver the training. And so then the whole concept of 500 is sort of a pie in the sky numeric tipping point in that 
to get 500 women trained in this material to deliver it to another 500 women. And out of that second tier of 500 women, somebody else, more people will stand up and go, I want to deliver this material as well. Get them certified to deliver the material and just keep, keep going exponentially. And then the, the, the long-term idea here would be that we reach a statistical tipping point in as many cultures, populations as we can on the planet, where a would-be assailant, somebody who's picking out a target, like, you know, let's see who's my target for today, whether it's a, kind of that soft, you know, social slip into a social behavior in a acquaintance sexual assault or it's domestic violence or it's that stranger rape dynamic that our, our threat is picking out a target. And their assumption is going to be the majority of the women have training and they have effective training. And then they'll find something else to do. That doesn't mean they're going to find suddenly become good citizens, but we reduce the percentage. We reduce those stubborn statistics of violence against women by making the cultural expectation as we set the cultural expectation up as women are hard targets, meaning if, if you, you choose one, you better be ready. So that's, that's the mindset behind it. And we have our, as, as you know, we were talking about this before, we have our first official 500 Rising instructor development course in May, we think, uh, <laughs> right now. Um, and, and actually, whether it goes off in May or it gets postponed, one of the groundbreaking things about the May seminar is, and then this isn't me, I didn't do this, is that it's being hosted by and underwritten by, from a financial standpoint, by Moundsview Police Department, which is a municipality outside of Minneapolis, St. Paul, like never happens. And, and because they're backing it, I just fill out a bunch of paperwork and write out the curriculum and send it to the Minnesota Post, which is the um, certification board for peace officers, uh, standards and training. And Post approved it for 30 hours of credit for law enforcement officers which is in the so state of fantastic. Minnesota. Yeah. It's like, yeah. so one, this is a, a civilian course. It's frankly untested because we haven't done it before like this. I mean, I've done bits and pieces of it, but not all at once in this format. And I've got a police department who's, and that's because Casey, who's part of, who's kind of spearhead of violence dynamics, he works for Mounds View and he, you know, they were willing to be at the pointy end of the spear and say, well, we'll do something. We'll, we'll go with something untested. So like just never happens with police department. Ever. No. Yeah. So super excited about that because that's, um, you know, it's cool to be in, in uncharted territory in that way. Oh, and yes. there's just so much ahead for this program. I, like I said, I'm, I'm firmly believe that this is going to take you in some, very fantastic directions. And I, I, again, believe very much in this movement. So uh, I'm excited for one to see where it goes. And for those of you who want to learn more about it, I'm going to post links to everything below so you can find out more about it. If you're a female instructor, get on this training. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to be so important. It's going to be so changing uh, just worldwide. And uh, I can't recommend it enough. Uh, that being said, especially talking about females, I mean, You've been a female instructor for a long time. I'm sure you've had uh, your fair share of, of fun and, and also horror stories. Um, 
I'd like to talk a little bit about what that road has been for you because I mean, really as a female in self-defense, I mean, you really are a pioneer in that, I mean, in so many different ways, but in this way in particular, um, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about what your experience has been as a female instructor, especially with the amount of knowledge and education that you come with, uh, aside just from the expert level crop ranking. You know, it's been a very interesting road. And I would say that the, the majority of it, you know, some total has been a positive experience. It's, and there have been some interesting bumps along the way. The, I had the rare privilege of training in in my so with kmg they have a three-part series to become certified as an instructor and the i had in the u.s it was just kind of trying to get its kind of feet set into the soil here and in the second phase which is the first nine-day event of the three processes um a all yamlov came over for it and i'd had alan predelin who owns the 360 program network at, in SoCal, so he's down Long Beach area. He did our first one, the first five days, and had a, just had a really great experience with him. He's a fantastic instructor. And, and that was like in January, and that was that whole like, have you seen, because in KMG, they use patches instead of belts, and they put them on the pant leg. And so they were like, you know, you should go to the, do the five day, you know, instructor thing. I'm like, have you seen the patch on my leg? the number of stripes that aren't there like right so i had a lot of i had a lot of encouragement a lot of people and and were, it was the guys right because at that point there were it was all the men they're like hey no go do this so i get done with the first five day training alan was running it and he and they all were teaching the second one together and he said so you're coming in march right i'm like this march like it's January. <laughs> it's like, you know, for phase two, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm so ill-equipped for that. So I had a tremendous amount of support and I was ill-equipped for it. And it was like drinking from a, a fire hose. Let me tell you, it was, I, it was intense. Um, but the support that I got from him while I was down there, it was in Florida and the support that I got from AL were tremendous. And, and particularly because again, I'm ancient for this industry, I didn't start the instructor certification process with KMG until I was 47. You know, and it's like, you know, if somebody would say something I'm like, you do know how old I am, right? <laughs> what you're talking about there is, you know, like something, you know, maybe I could have done at 18. So whole different conversation. But I think that is also particularly relevant. And one of the things that all has been known for and continues to be we're not with camp g anymore but continues to be a huge proponent for is create making sure that training is accessible to women and that it's appropriate for women that you know matches our bodies and stuff like that so i had a lot of support in the beginning and then have just trained with some amazing people outside of the crop world that just exploded my horizon and understanding and application of self-defense and that's a big distinction, right? Because Krav is a combat fighting system and it has a applications to self-defense like most martial arts do, but self-defense is its own ball game. So um, yeah, so it was, so I had a lot of support and I had the rare privilege of working for Krav Maga Global's headquarters for a couple of years, helping them kind of restructure the women's division that they had attempted to put together. There were a couple of women who'd written a course 
four KMG instructors in how to work with women. And one of them was one of the first global certified instructors. She was part of the global team with KMG, had a chance to train with her. So had a lot of really amazing people who were willing to stand in my corner, which was huge. And, um, and then some interesting bumps along the way. So that's wonderful. That's I'm so glad you were able to get so much support because that really isn't the story for some people. Um, so I, it makes me happy yeah. to hear that people have had such positive experiences, which I think, like you said, I think it speaks a lot to IL and then to Krav Maga Global and kind of their, their whole program. I think that's fantastic. But, you know, you kind of brought up a couple of different uh, people that you've trained with and worked with, which, uh, I mean, let's face it, you have trained with some of the best instructors and most well-known instructors in the world. I mean, obviously, you spent a lot of time with Rory Miller. Um, I know it wasn't terribly long ago. You had just done another, I think it was a um, uh, anti-hostage or something along those lines class with Ed Calderon. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, all, all of these great instructors that you've gotten to spend the time with, um, I'm sure you could speak on on all their in training for, for a long time. But of all those people that you have trained with, who do you think over-delivered and gave you a little bit uh, more than you were anticipating in the best of ways? Well, the person who tops the list this is hard because I, I, I hate ranking um, people in that way, but is, is Rory. And that's because he challenged me in a way that, I was in, in a, yeah, okay, this is fair, in a way that I had not been challenged from a, you know, a combat fighting system perspective and, and really pressed me to, to be willing to, um, to the, how do I phrase this? Um, so I have the bumps in the road. So a little bit of background here that I've hit coming up as an instructor as well is that I, I hit being an instructor. I hit, came into the instructor world with an overarching assumption that was profoundly incorrect. And, and that was that of all the places in the universe that are encouraging and welcoming to women and for women to rise up within the, the tiers, I guess, if you will, self-defense, the self-defense world should be it. And, um, and while I had a lot of support, I also ran into some pretty hard brick walls and some, you know, which is where you're talking about some, not always true, right? That everybody comes up uh, with a, a kind of a golden experience. And I met with some deep pockets of resistance and in some in very overt ways uh, and some hostility as a female instructor. And I've had a couple of people take some very overt shots at me. So, uh, you know, that's thing because the best expl- explanation I've had of this was talking to a woman who is also kind of a pioneer in firearms training for women. And she's since retired. We had a conversation many years ago on the phone and she said, you know what I think this is? I think it's a stay in, the, stay in your lane conversation. And that this is that world, the self-defense world, personal protection world has belonged to the men. And you're welcome to play as a student and you're welcome to excel as a practitioner, whether it's, you know, in the fighting arts or on the range, but stand up as in a leadership role. Ooh, now you're outside of your lane and we don't know what to do with you. So there's this kind of push to push you back into your lane. And some of those pushes, sorry about that. (laughs) Um, Some of those pushes were subtle and 
I think came from a what they believed was well-intentioned place. And some of them were overt and, you know, smacks upside the head and direct shots and things like that. So all that to say, Rory was probably the first person that I worked with and trained with who basically, and I, you've had some interaction with him. Rory is direct and blunt. He's also a very kind human being, but he's very yes. direct. And it, he basically just said, you know, like, you got to choose if you're going to be a student practitioner, you know, or you're going to get out there and lead. Like, you can't, like, you got to pick, sister. Um, and, you know, he obviously had a strong opinion. Sorry about that. Um, he had a strong opinion about where he wanted me to be, but not because he wanted me to be there, but where he thought I would be of most value, I guess, in our industry. And, and that was to get out front. Um, so yeah, I think Rory hits the top of the list on that because he was also very accessible from a mental gymnastics standpoint. I would send him, poor guy, when we first started working together, emails that were like small, you know, theses on like, so have you thought about this? And have you thought about that? And why this and why that? And why do you think this happens as a guy coming out of the, you know, law enforcement industry and, you know, traditional martial artists, you know, why this mindset, why this attitude? And, and he, we probably spent a year to 18 months just picking all kinds of things apart. And that was, he was the first person in the industry that not only didn't resist all the questions, because sometimes you'll get that like, okay, enough with the questions, just go train. And women like to ask questions. We need to explore. It's, you know, very much part of how we're wired. And so he was very open and encouraging to that. But he also was, I don't know even how to describe this, but he, he pushed me to push at the conversations that we were having, the ones that we didn't have answers to, the ones that were like, I don't know. I said, all right, go figure it out, go find out. So, and, and that's not super common in the martial arts world you, where people, generally there's the, the, what I call the dojo mindset, which is you don't ever, you don't ever leave your sensei. You don't ever go, you know what, this is great. Now I'm going to go explore other things. I'm going to go press at the edges of these envelopes and see what else is out there. Like that's, that was one of those rules I didn't know existed until I, um, broken it and got in a whole lot of trouble for it and you know so that's I, I would think that's the over delivery piece is as a seminar-based instructor he travels all over the world and talks to hundreds and hundreds of people and somebody like that who's willing to have all those email conversations with some chick that he met in philly you know or pittsburgh oh we were in pittsburgh um when i first trained with him you know that's that's rare yes it's it's uniquely rare and uh you know i that's one of the reasons i'm such a big fan of rory is uh again i followed him for a long time i think i've read everything he's written at least twice um <laughs> but yeah. I, I have found that to be true is that uh, any conversation i've had with him he is very open and willing to have those conversations it's not that dojo mindset that you're talking about where this is what you do you don't ask questions you do as you're told and then you act as if a student um, he has always been uniquely open to have those conversations, which I think, like you said, I mean, it's a unique 
unique place for an instructor, especially somebody who, uh, you know, is educated and well-known as Rory. And so uh, I love that, that that's the person that you think that you got the, the biggest benefit for or the, you know, biggest bang for your buck, so to speak, um, because Rory is continually putting out information and continually educating himself and setting a precedent for other instructors. I, I think I, that's what I get from Rory is that, you know, to continue your education and continue learning mm -hmm. and to continue to push further than you're comfortable with, which I think is awesome. So uh, on that note, um, as somebody who intellectually has such a phenomenal background and obviously within the self-defense world is continuing to seek more uh, training and continuing to grow and continuing to learn, what is it that motivates you to continue that, that journey, to continue to learn, continue to, um, you know, figure out new ways to teach and new ways to uh, push your, your self-defense skills? What is it that motivates you to continue on that path so that uh, you can continue to teach others? That's a really good question. The first answer is not terribly magnanimous. <laughs> um, I'm a little bit of an adrenaline junkie. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's, um, so I'm, I, I got to go find the adrenaline once in a while. And that's, you know, what put me in front of, from Ed Calderon. I had trained with him sort of, he'd come to an event I was at in Oakland and that was my first exposure to, and that was some years ago. And then buddy of mine up in Massachusetts was going to do a weekend with him. And he's like, you should come with me. And I'm, you know, in the back of my head, it's like I had this little exposure to Ed and then I had all this, you know, online presence that he has. Right. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> What's he doing that weekend? Um, I'd done some non-permissive environment training and some escape and evasion stuff like in out of restraints and in a very comfortable way, like a very, you know, like, do you go, you know, the instructors are fantastic people. They're friends of mine and they, they get the psychology. So it's like, you know, work with what you want to work with you know, we'll just take it to the threshold that you're comfortable with. And I know that Ed's Ed comes at it like, if you're here, if you signed up for one of my seminars, then, you know, you're comfortable with being uncomfortable. So I'm like, yeah, I don't know. So he's like, I tell you what, you come up, you get yourself up here. I'll pay for your, your admission to him. You teach a workshop for me and, you know, we'll balance it out. I'm like, okay. Um, so that's the adrenaline junkie side of me. And that was, I uh, got my fill that weekend. That was good. I mean, it really was a fantastic experience because we did the E&E &E stuff and the non-permissive environment training. And, and then they, they do a, I wouldn't call it full on scenario training, but close in that entry level course that he does. And it's, uh, it definitely ramps you up a little bit. Um, so adrenaline junkie is probably the first reason why as at a personal level, as an instructor though, the all right now this is this is going to probably get me in trouble somewhere but personal rant i find it offensive to be frank that one would be in this industry and assume that one has reached the end of one's training and then turn and believe that they can continue to deliver instructions to other people because Violence, violence is both simple and complex. It changes and evolves as culture changes and evolves. I'm sure we're going to see evidence of that in the next few, you know, weeks to month. And to say, like, even, so even they all, I mean, he's, he's been rocking this thing since he was a teenager and he's older than I am. And he is, you know, he's a reader. He explores, he, you know, he's, he doesn't go, yeah. 
I'm all that in a bag of chips, which he could do um, and probably justifiably. So I, I find it offensive if I hear an, about an instructor who's like, it hasn't been on the mat in 15 years. When was the last time you trained? Oh, I don't remember. And then your students need to rethink their experience with you because you're going to provide a finite set of data and say, this is it. This is the sum total of reality. And that's never true. So I think that's the other aspect of it. Fantastic answer. Fantastic answer. Um, as a conflict communication instructor, uh, going into the next couple of weeks with what we've got going on, can we talk a little bit more about maybe some tips and tricks you might offer for those of us who are stuck at home with family? As much as we love our family, yes. conflict does arise, as is the nature of the beast. <laughs> yeah, well, and that, and we're in unprecedented times right now. Absolutely. I mean, we don't have all the articles that I've been reading about the people who are supposed to be capable of creating both economic and healthcare projections. Like, that's what they do. So, like, that those projections are based on historical data and amalgamating all that information into like, this is where we see the bus going. And there's just no, there's very little historical data to work from, right? So they're rolling the dice on that. The conflict and most conflict within our daily lives and experiences is falls into the framework of what we call social conflict. So it's based on the tribal reality of humanity and we are as much as you know like the lone we like the idea of the lone wolf right you know cowboy rides off into the sunset uh we don't function well that way and even the people who live out on thousand acre ranches and don't see anybody for you know two weeks at a time riding fence they're you know they're still mentally connected to their tribe whether it's their you know family back home or their whatever so we're tribal by survival and the conflict that evolves within that is where we frame social conflict and there's a cheat sheet in figuring out how to find out where the conflict is bubbling up from and if you can find it before it erupts it's always better just like in in the physical stuff right you know if you can avoid it avoid it so largely speaking in social conflict the root source is going to fall into one of four categories and I like the image of Legos because they often stack. So you'll have more than one happening at a time, but it's, we have conflict in issues around status, which is, we call it esteem or value. And that is who's in charge, but also in my tribe, I need to not only know who's in charge because we don't do well without hierarchy. We get a little crazy over that. We also want to know that we have value in our tribe. And we need people in our tribe that we also value in return. And so, and that all goes into status. Um, so if something gets wonky there, then things start to get crunchy in the relationships. And, you know, it's parents and kids all trapped in the house right now together. You know, you're going to get a little who's going to try to assert their dominance because they're tired of whatever, right? And they're going to try to play the hierarchy jump. And then, you know, that's where mom goes. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, why tigers eat their young. Um, so, so that's. I have I have two boys. They're grown, but I vividly remember those moments. So, um, so status is one of the places where we have breakdowns and conflict arises, and that membership, which is going to be very interesting to see how that plays out, because that's who who belongs in the group. 
the best quick explanation is the junior high lunch cafeteria. Like, you, you know, you sit at the wrong table, you know it, you know, it's like, excuse me, what are you doing at this table? This isn't your table. This belongs to the whatever table and blah, blah, blah. Right. So um, violating the tribe that you're supposed to be in or breaking into a new tribe or, you know, who has sub tribes within, you know, all that kind of classic junior high behavior, which frankly, we don't actually grow out of. We just get more sophisticated at it. So membership is an area. And I think here right now where we're going to run into like, membership stuff is going to cross over into territory issues, which is the third one. And we're already seeing that, like who gets all the toilet paper? I don't get that anyway. Like she's <laughs> not a digestive tract problem sports fans. Um, but that's uh, somebody decided that was the currency. So they went out and created this currency. The, but that's, so territory is what belongs to me and what belongs to my tribe. And sometimes it's physical territory, like borders between countries. Um, but mostly in most modern cultures that aren't in conflict with neighbors, you know, country neighbors, it's, it's more subtle than that. And territory is, you know, like who's responsible for cleaning up the kitchen? Well, it's not my kitchen today. It's your kitchen today, you know, whatever. So it's territory dispute. And then, so I always have to go through the list because I always forget one when I get to it. So status, membership, territory, protocols. So protocols are the rules that we live by. And this is probably going to be like Lego number one in the evolving dynamic in our society right now, because they're not just the rules of society. Like on Monday, you said you have, you get a whole new set of rules to live by on Monday uh, where you guys are. Right. And so there's a rule enforcement and there's an cultural contract on like, we're going to follow these rules and people who don't follow the rules then there's punishment and you know all that dynamic that we have in a rule of law society. But the rules are also the social mores, the unspoken things like how you ride on an, on an elevator, which now is a whole different thing. But outside of COVID-19, we ride on elevators, the door is open, there's a lot of people on it. You get to hear all the people and you get on the elevator, you don't stand and face them, right? I mean, try it once outside of COVID-19. <laughs> And, you know, and see what happens, right? Everybody's like, the fuck is wrong with you? And there's this energy that says, turn around, you know, face the door, you're doing it wrong. So those are unspoken rules that we grow up with. Very few of us had a parent say, or a mentor, okay, so now when you get on an elevator, you have to turn around and face the door. People are going to get mad at you. Like, you know, we just, we learn these things intuitively and we create social contracts around those. And those things are going to be really, really volatile right now. So inside a household, when things start to get crunchy, it's like, okay, what's, what's being tested? Status, membership, territory, protocols, rules, what's being pushed at? And being able to, to breadcrumb trail it a little bit before it blows up and we have, you know, tantruming children or adults. I expect the adults to fully tantrum as well. Um, is to go, okay, what what's going on? Because if we can trace it and get within the ballpark of like, okay, so I think maybe this is status and territory stuff that's going on, then we can we can circumvent it. 
as long as and you were this, I loved how you were talking about y'all's training center out there. It's like, this is a no ego place, right? Egos get checked at the door. So we have the capacity to de-escalate and circumvent explosions and conflict if we're willing to check our egos at the door because we have our ego is there and our little monkey brains want to be right and want to be in charge and so we have to go okay i'm going to assume the problem is me that's the safe bet i'm going to assume the problem is me what's being pushed at what's crunchy right now and what can i do to help massage this a little bit and and sometimes it's subtle like the kid who caused the dog to bark earlier when he walked through the door is on extended leave from university right now because they don't know what they're doing. And he, back when he was significantly younger and smaller, one of the responsibilities was walk the dog periodically. And, you know, like young junior high, like, you know, when to walk the dog or I'll do it later. I'll do it later. I'll do it later. I'll do, you know, that kind of thing. And, and so that became one of our sources of, you know, me, the mom, rah, rah, you know, you have to do what I told you that always works so well. Uh And right. So being able to figure out, okay, what is this about? You know, this is a, it's a, it's a tribal control for status, right. Who gets to decide what you do and territory in a way, like who gets to decide what you do with your time. So time is, is a territory in essence, personal boundary. And so the classic script, mom says, walk the dog, kid says, okay, I'll do it later. And then it ends up in a fight because later never happens. So we can circumnavigate that. And I had, this is usually luck. When you find a good one, it's usually luck. My parents had been in town. They left the ginormous ancient Newfoundland, who's usually part of my broadcast. It loves the grandparents because they feed him all the things and so I was like aha because I was like hey I need you to walk the dog the dog like I can feel myself getting crunchy I was like hey you know what you know Bear just loves the grandparents because they feed them all the time and they left yesterday and you notice he's just kind of laying around I think he's really depressed he's like you know he's like 11 at this stage right he's like oh you're right he's so sad would you spend a little time with him and take him out for a walk yeah no problem (laughs) so that only works when we get off ourselves you know and so i think that's if we're going to distill all that down use those four categories as a cheat sheet to okay what's what's really going on because the arguments are rarely about the actual argument they're rarely actually about who's unloading the dishwasher You know, it's like there's something else in the background. So what is it? What's being pushed at? And then get off me, assume that I'm the one who's part of the problem and find a different way to create the collaboration that you need to get the jobs done because that's going to be the challenge right now. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic advice. Well, uh, in closing, I mean, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Can you tell us a little bit more where people can find more information about you, your upcoming courses, and, and things that you're offering? Uh, sure. So I have a couple of web pre- presences. We have coreselfdefense.com, which is the website for our training center here. And we do seminars where we bring people in and have people come in from other places once in a while, <laughs> except right now. <laughs> um, and the 500 rising has its own website so it's 500 rising.com 
those are the two like web anchors as far as places where you can find stuff on the internet, my Facebook page. And in fact, I'm going to be, um, as the person who's really at fault for 500 rising is one of the co-owners of Wolf Dog Marketing. It's a female owned marketing company on up in New England. And so we've been in conversation and she's been pushing me to kind of shift what I'm doing a little bit online. So I just have all my, all the people that I meet and all the people that I know are there on my Facebook page. Like, you know, like, yeah, come on. And, um, that's eventually going to, so Rory Miller has run into this problem. He literally cannot add anybody else to his Facebook page because there's Facebook apparently has cap. I'm nowhere near that by any means, nowhere near. Um, However, Allie was like, yeah, you know, you should probably shift and create a fan page, which is so bizarre. I just can't even like that doesn't make sense to me, but like, okay. So I am going to probably create a fan page or a personality page or whatever the fuck we call those things. Um, <laughs> and, and create a little bit of a division between my personal page because not everybody wants to see me post pictures about my dogs. So, um, and, and so if, feel free if people want to um, friend me on Facebook. And then when I get that set up, I'll, I'll make announcement like, Hey, come over here. Cause it'll be more of this kind of stuff that I'll be doing. The Chiron training. I'm a director with Chiron training. Join us. If you have a couple of extra dollars to spend, I'm going to plug that right now. Our Patreon site, because we, there are four of us contributing. It's me. It's Rory. That's the big name. That's why you should come play. Paul DiRanto who's up in new England and Malcolm Rivers who's out of DC. And there's just some really, fantastic content developing and it's not just the four of us it's the it's the the tribe that's evolving inside that patreon community some really smart people are coming to play so highly encourage that that's a place where you can find me as well and violence dynamics is you know i'm part of that so yeah wonderful you look, go ahead go ahead i was just saying if you look hard enough you'll 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 find the people who don't like me because they're out there too <laughs> <laughs> well, they're wrong, so it's okay. Um, but yes, uh, for those of you who want to follow along, I highly encourage it. I'm going to post all of those links below here, so you can just simply click on them and hit the like button. Um, uh, again, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us and your background and and embracing us with or embrace uh, you know just being on the show. Uh, I'm kind of stumbling over oh, my words you. just because it's been such a privilege and certainly my honor to have you. And uh, again, folks follow along. There's some amazing training happening with uh, all the different places that she said. Um, give them a like, certainly worth your time and energy. So um, again, thank you for coming on and guys, we'll catch up with you another day with another, uh, another interview soon. Thanks for having me.